Please take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We're going to begin our reading today in Luke, chapter 7, verse 36, and we will read on through the beginning of chapter 8, verse 3. We'll finish out that verse. Uh, You can find that on page 864 of our cart Bibles today, Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, reading through chapter 8. Verse 3, and as you're turning there, let me remind you where we are and what we're doing in Luke, because it's been a while since we've been here. We spent some time this summer looking at God's wisdom in Proverbs, and today we are rejoining our studies through the Gospel of Luke. And it was uh, this very Sunday, one year ago, that we began Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and I began with a quote from J.C. Ryle. If you were with us in Sunday school today, Uh, You heard a quote from Martin Luther on why Christians ought continually to study the book of Romans. Well, J.C. Ryle tells us why we ought to continually study the Gospels. Uh, Both are good, by the way. So make that, uh, both of them, part of your steady diet. But J.C. Ryle says, it would be well if professing Christians studied the Gospels more than they do. I say this because I want Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It's better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. These are all matters pertaining to the king, but it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. This is one secret of eminent Holiness, he that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ. What are we doing in the Gospels? We're catching a glimpse of our King. We're seeing our Savior. We're praying that the Holy Spirit working in his people would make us more like him. And so that's the focus today of our study Uh, in Luke chapter 7. uh, We will be seeing uh, a familiar passage with this sinful woman, forgiven. Uh, But we ended last spring here uh, in uh, the end of uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 33. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." And there is no transitional language, there is no, and then on the next day, therefore, when it came to pass, there is nothing but a next picture of Christ, the friend of sinners. That's what we'll see today. Christ, the friend of sinners, as we look at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Before we read uh, this passage together, let us go to the Lord in prayer, that he would add a blessing as we read and study it today. Please pray with me. O Lord our God, we pray that you would open your word before us and open our hearts to receive it. These would not be only words that fall on our lips and occupy our minds for a time, but this would be part of your transformational work in your people, that as we come to your word, we would not leave here the same way that we came in, but that we would be changed. We would be uh, transformed by the work of your spirit, building us up even as we profess together today that by the preaching of the word, uh, we come to faith and our faith is strengthened. So, O Lord, we pray, give us stronger faith in Jesus Christ as we hear your word preached today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it uh, in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. 
one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon after, he went on throughout the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we read it and study it together. Just this week, uh, around our dinner table, uh, our family read together uh, the passage from 2 Kings chapter 4. Now in 2 Kings chapter 4, you find uh, the account uh, of the widow who came to Elisha. And she was desperate because her husband had died and left some debts, and now the creditor was threatening to come and take away and sell her sons to pay off her husband's debts. And Elisha replied with instructions to the woman. He told her to go home. He told her to go to her neighbors and gather as many vessels as she could, as many jars and containers as she could find, and, and to go into her house and take the one measly little jar of olive oil that she had and to begin filling and filling and filling all of these containers. Well, somewhere around halfway through that passage at our table, one of my children said, Daddy, we've already read this one. It's probably true that we had heard that passage before, but actually they were thinking of 1 Kings chapter 17, where we find the story of the widow of Zarephath. That widow went to Elijah, or rather Elijah went to that widow, and she supplied him with cakes of wheat and oil in desperate times. And it's an honest mistake. 
We had read that passage just about two weeks prior. But sometimes reading scripture feels that way, and it can feel like what you read is that joke that you know that you've heard and you just can't remember the punchline. And you would be forgiven if you hear this passage today and you immediately think, oh yes, I know, this is the one. This is the one about that woman who came with that incredibly expensive jar of perfume and and anointed Jesus Christ for his burial. You would be forgiven if you confused this passage with the one in Matthew chapter 26 or Mark chapter 14 or John chapter 12, which all record actually a different event and a different woman. You remember the details of that text. You remember the details of of her coming just before Jesus' burial to anoint him and how she did a beautiful thing and how the, the pound of pure nard that she brought was so expensive that even the disciples sat around grumbling and saying, you know, that, that could have been sold. It could have been given to the poor. And, and you might be forgiven for thinking that the point of this passage is the same as that passage, that all that we have is, is never too good to give to Jesus, that nothing is too good to render up to him. But this is not that woman. This is not that banquet. You notice there is no mention about how expensive uh, this ointment is. There is no mention of what the poor are suffering outside. There is no mention of Jesus' imminent burial. This happens near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Hard to believe that we've been a year through Luke and we're still looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But so it is. Uh, And it's not the worth of her gift that takes center stage here. It's not the preparation for burial. It is the love of a forgiven sinner that captures the spotlight of this narrative. We find here a woman, a woman who had been set free, and we find the Savior who had released her, and we also find this smug Simon sitting there muttering to himself where he thinks no one can hear. Now, as the scene opens in the first two verses, uh, Luke introduces these three primary characters to us in this, this historical drama, this event that actually happened, and yet Luke presents it with all of the drama of something that you would go and pay a lot of money to see on a stage somewhere. And so this is the way that we're going to proceed to, to look and to open up this passage by looking at these different characters, looking first at a sinful woman, looking secondly at a self-righteous man, and finally seeing our forgiving Savior, a sinful woman, a self-righteous man, and our forgiven Savior. Now, before we can really look uh, at this sinful woman, we are told of a dinner party. It's a dinner party where Jesus is invited to be the guest of honor, and actually that is quite a common thing in these times, especially if Jesus was in a different city, and especially if he had perhaps preached in the synagogue just that Sabbath morning. Maybe this is a Sabbath afternoon meal, and this is the sort of thing that would be expected. Some prominent family in the town, in the city, would invite the visiting rabbi to come and to have dinner at their house, and it would would be a bit of a community spectacle. Everyone in the community was, was implicitly invited, not to come and have part of the meal, but to drop in as silent spectators. And they could sit around in, in this uh, larger-than-average home, in their larger-than-average courtyard, as everyone reclined at table, and they could listen in to what the rabbi had to say, and they could learn from this visiting teacher. And this is the sort of thing that happened all the time. And so it's strange for us to think about hosting a banquet and unexpected guests, but this is the way that things were done. With no inconvenience to have a few looky-loos hanging around the outside seeing uh, what was going on, just so long as they were not a disturbance 
uh, to what was going on, and that is where the woman comes in. She was a disturbance. And not just because of what she did, she was a disturbance because of who she was. Notice the description. In fact, it's the only description that we find of this woman in verse 37. We're not told later what her name is. We're not told uh, that she has an occupation or a husband or a status or a connection. We're told nothing about her other than verse 37. Behold, that is, that's Greek for look at this. Can you believe it? Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's it. A double outcast. She was a woman and she was a sinner. And she was not a sinner in the sort of general, categorical, all we like sheep have gone astray sort of sinner category. She was a sinner in the identifiable way, in the sort of sinners and tax collectors sort of way. She was a sinner who looked the part. She was the woman uh, that when you did a Google image search for sinful woman, you saw her picture. Everybody knew who this woman was in this town. A woman of the city who was a sinner. She was the one who got that squinty-eyed glance. She was the one that everybody avoided when they saw her coming down the street because you already know everything you need to know about this woman, don't you? After all, she's a sinner. And just to make sure that you don't miss that detail, who this is, uh, Luke repeats this identification two more times. Verse 37, uh, a woman who was a sinner, but then verse 39. We find it on the lips of Simon as well. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Even Jesus doesn't try to put a polish on her reputation. What does he say? He speaks in verse 47 of her sins, which are many. There is no denying that this woman is bad news. Most of the commentators, when they get uh, to this description in verse 37, they will make uh, kind of a big deal about the fact that this description, a woman of the city who was a sinner, can really only mean a few things. None of them are very good. And the most, uh, most probable of them is that she was a harlot. She was a prostitute. She was the woman of Proverbs, that adulterous woman with her body for hire, with, with one foot in the grave, alluring men to come and engage in her sin. And maybe it's true. Maybe her past had been full of all sorts of indiscretions and abuse and all sorts of unspeakable, dehumanizing evil. Maybe it's true that that's the woman that she was, but we see that when she comes and she shows up in the scene here, she is a changed woman. How do you know that? Well, look at the way that she seeks Jesus out. That's not new. Lots of people look for Jesus, lots of people try to find Jesus. They try to get near to Jesus, but so far in Luke, almost all of them are seeking what Jesus can give to them. They want to hear a sermon. They want to see a miracle. They want to have their bellies filled. They want to come and take him by force and make him their king. They want to be healed. They want to have their demons driven out. They want to be cured of whatever it is. They've got this friend, this neighbor, this family member who needs him. And almost everybody who seeks out Jesus so far in Luke's gospel is seeking what Jesus can give to them. But this woman seeks what she can give to Jesus, even though it's not much. Notice how prepared she is. Verse 37, this woman of the city, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She was prepared. She brought with her a gift of gratitude, some small token of thanksgiving for what the Lord had done for her. We don't know when the Lord had touched her life. Maybe it was 
the sermon that morning in the synagogue, perhaps. Maybe it was one of these other times when the crowds were pressing in and gathering around to hear the word of God preached as Jesus went from town to town. We don't know, but, but we get the sense that she has encountered Jesus before. She has put her faith in him, and she has been forgiven, and now she comes to say thank you in whatever way she could. And when she comes to thank him, her heart cannot remain hidden. And that's the thing about tears. You can be prepared with a bit of perfume. You can make sure you stop off at home on the way over to the Pharisee's house and you can pick up the things that you need, but you almost never plan to cry in a particular situation. You might know that it might happen, but you certainly don't put it on. Hollywood actors spend years trying to perfect the art of crying on command, and if you can do it well, you win an Oscar. If you can't do it well, you ruin the scene, and everybody knows it because your head is in your hand and your shoulders are shaking, and it looks terrible. You can't just sort of do this thing. And so her heart could not be hidden when she stood there in a crying mess at his feet, sobbing and convulsing. It was a display of genuine love. One commentator says she fell at his feet a self-forgetful mess. Maybe she intended to anoint Jesus' head. Maybe that's where she was trying to get to. But the way that, that you would eat in uh, this place at this time, you may know, is to recline at a table, which really meant that, that the table was in a bit of a U-shape, and everyone around the table sat on low cushions, and they leaned forward on their left arm so they could eat with their right, and all of their feet were splayed out away from the table because the feet were unclean and dirty, and you wanted nothing to do with feet. You wanted them as far away from the food as possible, and so maybe she was trying to get to his head, and she only got as far as his feet, and her emotions took her over, his feet. Savior's feet, the feet that Isaiah foretold, the feet of him, how beautiful the feet who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, she fell at these beautiful feet and, and wept tears of thanksgiving and love and freedom. She wanted nothing more than to kiss the feet of those kissed those feet that meant salvation to her soul, and then she did something unthinkable. She untied her hair. I don't recommend that you go out and see it, uh, but years ago, uh, I watched The Passion of the Christ. I don't recommend uh, that you go out and watch it, uh, but there is a moving and powerful scene there. If you know uh, what happens in this culture, and the scene is a uh, a scene of flogging of Christ, and then I believe it's, uh, it's either Mary Magdalene or his mother, it's been years, uh, she comes in and she removes her veil uh, and, uh, and leaves her hair loose uh, to use her veil to sop up the blood. Uh, that's nowhere in Scripture, but it's a powerful, it's a moving scene because that's the sort of thing that did not happen in this culture. The rabbis taught that a woman uh, in Israel at this time who went out in public with her hair loose could be divorced for that. In certain situations, it was tantamount to a woman going out uh, without her top on. It was that scandalous. It was the sort of thing that never happened in polite company. She had to know that if she went in and, and loosed her hair to use her hair, the only thing she had uh, to wipe the tears from Jesus' dust-stained feet, that everyone would be shocked at what was going on. Everyone would sit there horrified. She would come in 
as a woman with little reputation and leave as one who had none at all. Simply because she let her hair loose. Why did she do it? She clearly didn't care. This self-forgetful mess. She didn't, she didn't lose her hair to broadcast herself or to impress the people. She loosed her hair because her hair was all that she had. Perhaps the one beautiful thing left about this woman who had been tossed out and abused year after year. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 15, that a woman's hair is her crown, her glory. And she stooped low enough to take her crown and to wipe the feet of her Savior. And she didn't care what anybody else thought about it. So deep was her love that she would stoop lower than any slave in Israel was ever expected to stoop. You could not compel, if you were an Israelite and you had an Israelite slave, you could not compel an Israelite slave to wash the feet of your guest. It was far too demeaning. And yet she comes in and stoops low enough to take her glory and her crown, her hair, weeping over the feet of him who preached good news and to wipe them. And why did she do it? She did it because she loved him. That's how Jesus summarized it, that this sinful woman loved much. She loved him so much that she didn't care what anybody else thought about her. It's probably a good thing. Because sitting there uh, with pious judgment is this self-righteous man. Here's our second point. This self-righteous man. Of course, this is Simon. The Pharisee who opened his home to invite uh, the teacher in. He's now sitting horrified at the scene that is unfolding before him. And in verse 39, Luke takes us inside the mind of a moralist. Inside the heart of someone whose entire life and religion is based on careful observance of external laws, of looking good on the outside, of washing the outside of the bowl and the cup. That was his whole life. But what do you find if you crack open a Pharisee? What do you see if you look inside his heart? Probably not what most people expected in those days. In those days, of course, the Pharisees were the most respectable people anywhere. They were the religious thoroughbreds. They were best described by Paul's words in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. He writes, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's what the Pharisees had. They had the law in abundance. And they stuck to it, at least outwardly, in minute detail. Pharisees were the outward antithesis of this sinful woman kneeling and weeping over Jesus' feet. They were well-bred. They were well-educated. They were well-behaved. But verse 39 exposed Simon for the whitewashed tomb that he was. What do you find if you look inside the heart of a Pharisee? You find contempt. You find judgmentalism. You find disdain for every single person other than yourself who does not live up to your righteous requirements and your standards. That's the way judgmentalism always works. You make mistakes and that's okay, but somebody else falls short and they're a horrible, terrible, wicked person, aren't they? And so what do you find in Simon's heart? You find contempt. 
find contempt for this sinful woman, of course. She represented everything the Pharisees were proud not to be. She wasn't just uh, rotten on the outside, but on the inside as well. When he looked at her, he saw nothing but moral failure. An unredeemable wreck of hair and tears. And he had contempt for this woman, the sinful woman of the city. But because he had contempt for this woman, he also had contempt for the Savior that she loved. If this man were a prophet, he said, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. What's the undercurrent in that statement? Well, if Jesus knew anything about this woman at all and about her sin, he would have to hate her just as much as Simon did. If Jesus were any kind of a righteous man, he would pull his feet away from this woman and leave her sobbing and festering in her idolatry and immorality. Here it is that we get a sense for exactly why Simon invited Jesus to his home in the first place. It's interesting. Luke is the only gospel that records Jesus dining with Pharisees. He records it three times. It never ends well for the Pharisees. Every single time it goes sour. And so we wonder, why is it that Jesus would go? Well, he'll, he'll accept an invitation from anybody, actually. Sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees, it doesn't matter. But why is it that Simon wants Jesus to come to his home? Is it, is it to get close to this teacher that everybody's abuzz about? Is it to hear this life-changing message for himself? Or is it to size Jesus up? That's the way judgmentalism works. It always looks at others with a critical eye. It seeks out any excuse to think less of somebody else in order to maintain the illusion that you are better and stronger and more righteous than they are. And if you find yourself in a pinch in that regard, the easiest way to maintain that illusion of your own righteousness is to tell yourself that not only do you do different things than people uh, who are not you, but you are a different kind of person than all of those sinners out there. You simply put yourself in a different category. That makes it all the easier. Notice again, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of a woman this is. She's a sinner. He puts her in a box. He gives her a category. He says, that's her and not me. And it's all so simple. No need to examine your own life if you can convince yourself that you are above the mass of sinners like everybody else. What did the proverbial Pharisee pray in Luke chapter 18? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Not only do I not do things like other men, but I'm not even like them. I'm in, I'm in a different sort of class. That's the soul of self-righteousness. It's actually a method of self-preservation. It's a way of building up immunity to the truth that whether, uh, whether you're a tax collector or a sinner, whether you are a priest or a Pharisee, actually, yes, indeed, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we have turned aside to our own way. In the 18th century, Selina Hastings uh, was one of the most prominent supporters of the ministry of George Whitfield. She was a, a countess in England, the Countess of Huntington. And she was a woman with 
with money and connections and influence. And she tried all that she could to use her influence to further the gospel message all throughout New England, but especially among the nobility of the land, seeing if perhaps the Lord would bless the efforts to bring the gospel to those who had other power and influence and so have this sort of ripple effect throughout English society. Well, at one point, she wrote to a certain duchess to invite her to hear Whitfield's preaching. And the duchess sent back the following reply. The duchess wrote, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. There's self-righteousness for you. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's the spirit of self-righteousness. It's the spirit of Simon. And so Jesus tells a parable to shatter this illusion of superiority, beginning in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, Jesus says. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now you see what Jesus is doing. This parable works on on several levels. The first thing that Jesus is doing, one level of this parable, is that he is closing that distance that Simon has imagined between himself and this sinful woman. A certain money lender had two debtors. One way over his head and the other just barely over his head, but it doesn't matter because neither one of them can pay. When you are insolvent, you are insolvent. When you are in bankruptcy, you are in bankruptcy. Whether it is by a little or by a lot, it doesn't matter. Jesus puts them both in the same category. Jeff Thomas suggests, uh, what does it matter if one man is drowning in 500 feet of water and another man is drowning in 50 feet of water? How foolish for the man in 50 feet to look down and say, well, now it could be worse. I could be drowning in 500 feet of water. How foolish to think that your situation is any different, that both as good as dead. And this is what Jesus is saying. Don't be fooled, Simon, by how squeaky clean your life looks in comparison to others. A debtor is a debtor, and a sinner is a sinner. And it doesn't matter if your sins are the kind that everybody can see or that nobody knows but the Lord himself. So this is the first thing that Simon needs to learn, that he's no different from the sinful woman that he was so repulsed by. But then on the other level, Jesus is telling this parable to expose the fact that that Simon's real problem, what's really going on in him, is not that he lacks compassion for sinners, but that he lacks forgiveness for sin. That's what's wrong with Simon. And so Jesus uh, makes a comparison. He begins uh, to apply this. He says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon knows he's being set up. I suppose. You can almost hear him gritting his teeth, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the greater debt. But he knows that he can't deny Jesus' logic. This is what you expect. The greater the gift one is given, the greater the gratitude. If you happen to be on the side of the road and your car is on empty and somebody stops by and and floats you a $20 bill to fill your tank and to get down the road a little bit further, you say, thank you so much. If you happen to be one of those students at whatever university it was, I forget, and and a certain billionaire shows up at your commencement speech and says, I'm going to pay all of your student debt. Well, you fawn all over that person for months and months and months and at least the 10 years it would have taken you to pay off that debt. 
The greater the gift, the greater the gratitude. And Simon knows this. I suppose, he says, the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And then Jesus applies. I entered your house and you gave me no water. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no oil. Now the woman, on the other hand, did all that, that Simon neglected. Jesus says that she wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She hasn't stopped kissing his feet since the time he came in. She anointed his feet with perfume, and it sounds like a small thing. It sounds like some strange Middle Eastern comparison. But what Jesus is doing is not pulling out some sort of uh, extra observances. He is talking about the bare minimum of Middle Eastern hospitality. Every single person who came under the cover of your roof, if you were a landowner and a homeowner at this time, every single person received water for their feet and a kiss for their cheek and oil for their head. And to offer anything less was a slap in the face. He's not just comparing and saying, well, you know, Simon, you've forgotten a few things. But he's saying, when I showed up, you showed contempt for me as well. This woman had abounding love for me and you had none at all. Kent Hughes says, Simon carefully avoided every custom that would make the Lord feel at home. He treated Jesus with callous, calculated contempt. And then to top it all off, while Christ gave kindness to this woman, the self-righteous man sat there judging Jesus in his wicked, hard heart. Her sins are forgiven, he said. How do you know? She loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. All right, well, what then do you say, the man who has no love at all? What do you say, the man who prides himself on looking down on others? You say, the one who convinced himself that he could never be lumped into the same category as common sinners. What do you, common sinners, what do you say of the man who disdains Jesus in all of his words of hope and welcome and forgiveness? See, Jesus is not issuing Simon a spiritual challenge. You know, Simon, if you could learn to love a little bit better, if you could just get around to being a little bit more compassionate, Simon, that's your problem. You know, Simon, if you would, if you would look with, with grace and compassion and kindness on the least of these, then your life would be sorted out. You've already got so many good things, and, and you lack just this one thing. He's not giving him a challenge. He is rendering a judgment this self-righteous man has no love because he has no idea what forgiveness is. He wouldn't know forgiveness if it was sitting there staring him in the face. Because actually it is. This is our third point. Luke draws our attention to our forgiving Savior. Now in the closing verses, Jesus' identity really, really comes into full view in this narrative. It's been there all along, of course. Jesus has, has been the focus in some way of everything that we've been reading. He was, he was the object of the sinner's affection. He was the foil to Simon's self-righteousness, but now his identity is there in the middle. In verse 48, Jesus makes a declaration that made everybody else in the room ask themselves the question that Luke has been driving at for seven chapters. Who is this? That's the point. Who is this? Who is this Jesus, friend of sinners? 
Who is this teacher of parables? Who is this one who claims for himself what only belongs to God Almighty? Who is this man who not only knows who and what sort of woman is touching his feet, but knows who and what sort of man has invited him into his home? Who is this that even forgives sins? This is not the first time in Luke's gospel that this same question has been asked. Back in Luke chapter 5, verse 21. We find immediately after declaring forgiveness to a man who was laid down on a paralytic mat through the roof tiles of an overcrowded house, Jesus said, my son, your sins are forgiven. Then it tells us, Luke chapter 5, then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is not shying away from this question. He's not coming now into this situation with another Pharisee saying, how can I avoid that sticky situation where they want to know why and, and what authority I have to forgive sins? If anything, he puts it right in the front. Notice how the first time Jesus mentions forgiveness, he mentions it in the third person. He doesn't say, I am forgiven, speaking of himself. He doesn't even say to Simon, you are forgiven. He's speaking to Simon. He says, she is forgiven. He's drawing Simon's attention to what he is doing for this other woman. He wants him to see how Jesus interacts with sin because Simon thought Jesus ought to interact with sin the same way that he interacted with sin. You see, Simon was a Pharisee. That meant that he had strict regulations about who and, uh, and what sort of people he would allow close enough. The Pharisees saw sin as a contagion, some sort of virus that you could catch through contact. And once you caught it, there was no cure. It simply ran its course until you died. The Pharisees are a group of people, and their name actually comes from a Hebrew word that means to be separate or to be distinguished. And so they went through life separating themselves from sinners. They went through life distinguishing themselves by their high moral code. And they separated from anyone who thought that their sin was something catchable. And Simon thought that if Jesus was any kind of man of God, he ought to be as repulsed by and as careful about getting close to this woman's sin as he was. Why does Jesus speak of forgiveness in the third person? It's to show Simon that he deals with sin by a different standard. He hasn't come into the world to keep his distance from sinners. He's coming to the world to draw sinners close to himself. In fact, that is the cure. For all of us who already have it, whether we are in contact with the terrible sinners out there lying in the gutter somewhere or not, we already have this infection, and the only cure is to come close to him. He doesn't live by the same pharisaical standards of, oh no, I can't approach you, oh no, I can't come close to you and your sin. Yours is too terrible for me even to mention. The Lord never works that way. He became, or he came, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, to be made sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He came according to Colossians chapter 2, to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He came as the good shepherd to seek and save the lost because, yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. He's turned every single one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus is no separatist when it comes to sinners. 
He's the welcoming Savior. He's the friend of sinners. He's the forgiving Savior. He's the one who came as the only one who has the power to reverse our reputation. How many times was this woman called a sinner in this passage? Once by Luke. Once by Simon. Once by Jesus. No wonder then that Jesus speaks three times of pardon for this woman. What does he say first to Simon? Well, he tells him her sins are forgiven. And then he turns to her, verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And though even though the, the crowds are wondering, he says it one more time, verse 50, in a different way, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Shalom. How beautiful the feet of him who publishes peace, who brings salvation. You see, this woman came in as, as someone that everybody identified as lost to righteousness, an enemy of God, an enemy of his perfect standard, and, and it was true in some sense. But she left as a woman who had been changed because she came into contact with Jesus, the one who has the power of forgiveness, and she left as a woman who had been declared innocent by the Lord himself. That's who this man is. Who is this one who even forgives sins? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the sin bearer. He's the Savior with all the power to forgive those who come to him in faith. Well, now we've seen this sinful woman and this self-righteous man and also our forgiving Savior. And I want to leave with just three very quick applications. What can we learn from these three? Is this just a story that happened somewhere long ago, far away. No, no, no. As we look at each of these individuals, we learn something, if we're willing, from each of them. By looking at the love of this woman, we find what, what true Christianity and real salvation actually looks like. We don't look at this woman's love and find uh, where salvation comes from. No, no, no. We love because he first loved us. Jesus says in verse 50 that salvation comes by faith. This wasn't the beginning of her salvation. This was the response of a saved heart, of a forgiven heart, what does it look like? Well, it looks, to be saved, it looks like having a heart that is full of love for Jesus. Isn't it interesting, in, in another situation where someone had sinned three times, Peter, the apostle, who denied his Lord three times on the night of his betrayal, that Jesus uh, asks a question of Peter, not, not of all the many things that he could have asked. He could have asked on, on that day and uh, beside the lake, he could have asked a question of faith. Peter, do you believe me? That's important. He could have asked a question of repentance. Peter, are you sorry for your sins? He could have asked a question of obedience. Will you follow me wherever I send you? Will you say whatever word I put into your mouth? But he doesn't. He asks a question that goes beneath all of those things. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Because that's what Christianity looks like. It looks like a heart full of love for Jesus Christ. The disciple who loves the Lord will be glad to hear whatever he has to say to us, even if it exposes our sin, even if it is a word of harsh obedience that we have to follow through. And so this woman shows us what real Christianity looks like. It looks like a heart full of love for Jesus. And then Simon teaches us something. 
he teaches us how to inoculate yourself against the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want a surefire way to have a heart that will never be full of God's love, Simon has the plan for you. Simply look around the room, whatever room you happen to be in at that particular time, and look at everybody else sitting there and remind yourself that you are better and more righteous than all of them. Find something to nitpick in somebody else. Find some other sin that they've done that you would never think of doing. And remind yourself, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like old so-and-so over there. It's a surefire way. It is setting up, it is erecting a barrier that the gospel, uh, we think, will never be able to penetrate. It's a way of protecting ourselves that we don't have to listen to the word uh, of sin uh, and repentance. Remind yourself that you can't be lumped into those categories because you're good and moral and obedient and Presbyterian. And again, if you want to be realistic, and if you want to have a heart that is open to what God will do in you, it doesn't mean that you have to dive into the deep end of iniquity. It simply means that you have to be willing to see the sin that's already in your heart. To go to the Lord with the words of Peter saying that I, I might actually be the worst sinner that it was ever, was ever born, brought into the world. So this woman shows us what Christianity looks like. And Simon teaches us how to inoculate ourselves against the gospel. But Jesus shows us that all kinds of sinners can find repentance in him. You know, the commentators make a big deal about the fact that this woman was probably a prostitute. It's, it's probably true. You notice that Luke never actually says that, though. He's okay simply to say, you know what, she was a sinner. He never tells us. In fact, Luke is, is seldom interested in telling us what the particular sins of the people that Jesus encountered were. Peter in the boat fell at his feet. Oh, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He didn't say, I'm an extortioner. I, I hate these people. I'm judgmental. He didn't say that. He said, I'm sinful. This woman shows up and says, she's sinful. And that's a good thing. Because if the point of this passage was that Jesus is able to forgive prostitutes, it is far too easy to say, well, that's not me. I'm beyond the pale. She, she can find forgiveness, but not me. If the point of this passage was that Jesus has the power to forgive tax evaders and drunkards and homosexuals and thieves, and haters of parents, and haters, you go on and on and on, whatever it is, it's far too easy to say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not me, but what does it say? Well, it says she was a sinner, and she found forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that all kinds of sinners can come to him. There is no sin that we can set up that says, oh, no, 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 this is, this is far too much for the Lord to transgress. Oh, no, 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 no. This is a passage about you. Sinners like you and me. So dear sinner, repent. Dear sinner, believe. Dear sinner, rejoice because Christ has come to preach good news to you as well. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this image of Christ that you have given to us in your word. The most perfect picture that could ever be painted free of all the flaws that artists throughout the years have put into their portraits of Jesus, true and unadulterated, pure in every way. We thank you for showing us Jesus today. We pray that you would make us more like him. We pray that you would work love for our Savior into our hearts. 
give us joy and rejoicing that cares not what others think about us, cares only to be near him, to pour out our hearts to him, to rejoice in him and to find forgiveness and peace in his name. We thank you. O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Ephesians, Paul reminds us that Christ himself is our peace. Where does peace come from? It comes by coming near to him, the one who was crucified, died and buried, who was raised again on the third day, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. We can still come near to him by faith. And this is a table where we do just that. We come not uh, eating Uh, or drinking physically Christ's body and blood, but by sign and seal we have preached to us, we receive by faith the truth of who Jesus is for his people. He's the forgiving sinner. He's the peacemaker. He's the one who brings shalom and publishes good news to all those who come to him believing in his name. If that's you, no matter what your sinful past may be, this table is for you if you have rejoiced in Christ your Lord, if you have professed faith publicly in his name and then joined to his church, come and receive the sign and seal of what he has done and what is in store for his people that day when we will eat and drink together with him in the kingdom of God. If you've not yet professed faith in Christ's name, do not not receive these elements. Wait until they pass. Allow them to pass. Do not eat and drink, as Paul says, judgment upon yourself, but consider whether The Lord is calling you to repentance today. Whether he's calling you to faith and to a proclamation that he is yours because he has made you his. We come uh, hearing the words of institution for this table as we read them. And Mark chapter 14 tells us that as they were eating, Christ took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly.